Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaBusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This hour of the Costa Report is brought to you by Dole Food Company, the world's leading producer and distributor of fresh fruits and vegetables. Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and thank you for joining me for another two hours of Straight Talk Radio. I want to take a moment to welcome the Monterey College of Law as a new sponsor of the Costa Report, and also extend a special welcome to members of our armed forces who are joining us over the internet. Thank you for your service and for being with us again. Our guest today is co-anchor of CNBC's Squawk Box, columnist for the New York Times, and author of Too Big to Fail, Mr. Andrew Ross Sorkin. And today we're going to talk about whether the financial reforms instituted following the collapse of Bear Stearns, the Lehman Brothers, and the bailout of AIG and others went quite far enough, as well as try to understand what these recent acquisitions by giants such as Microsoft mean for Main Street. But before Sorkin joins us, uh, as is my custom each week, let me tell you a little bit about his background. Andrew Ross Sorkin was born in New York City, and he is a graduate of Cornell University. He first joined the New York Times as a student intern when he was in high school, and he continued with the Times throughout his college studies. But by 1999, Sorkin was promoted to become their European mergers and acquisition reporter in London, and within one year, he became the chief mergers and acquisitions reporter in their New York office. Sorkin was the first to break the story on Chase's acquisition of J.P. Morgan, Hewlett-Packard's purchase of Compaq, Symantec's bid for Veritas Software, Boston Scientific's purchase of guidance and provided detailed coverage on the biggest hostile takeover in history when Vodafone made its 183 billion bid for Manusman. If there's a deal in the making, Sorkin is likely to find out about it ahead of any other financial sleuth. In 2001, Sorkin launched an internet-based financial news service called DealBook, which has has over a quarter of a million subscribers today. If you're interested in a one-stop shopping source which aggregates the top financial news stories, this is the one. I admit it's one of my guilty pleasures. Four years ago, Sorkin released his highly acclaimed account of the 2008 financial crisis and government bailout titled Too Big to Fail. His book shot to the top of the New York Times bestseller list and later became an HBO movie. And as if all these achievements weren't quite enough, two years ago, Sorkin took on yet another role. He became the co-anchor of CNBC's Squawk Box, and we'll hear more about his work in television a little later on in the program. It's my pleasure to welcome to the Costa Report a journalist who is always on the leading edge of breaking financial news, Mr. Andrew Ross Sorkin. Thank you for joining us, Mr. Sorkin. Wow, thank you for that introduction. My mother would be very proud. Oh, I hope she's listening. (laughs) Uh, I appreciate it very, very much. Well, uh, it's been over five years since the financial crisis you wrote about in Too Big to Fail uh, occurred. And and since then, you've been neck deep in deals and ups and downs on Wall Street. So I wanted to open the program today by asking you whether, in hindsight, you feel the financial reforms which were instituted during the bailout went far enough. I think the short answer is no, um, but I think the long answer is more complicated and probably less satisfying, which is that while the regulations that we put in place over the past couple of years, mostly through the Dodd-Frank legislation, um, will mitigate the next disaster or the next crisis, it will not absolutely 100% prevent one. Mm -hmm. But I think the larger piece for all of us to appreciate and potentially accept as much as we don't want to is 
that I do think we are going to be living with the idea of too big to fail forever. And the idea that we are going to somehow ultimately eradicate it and that somehow we can legislate out the prospect that we ever get back to a place like we did. And I know people will take umbrage at this may ultimately be impossible. Um, we, We talk about it as a goal, but when you really think about what the banking system is, I give a dollar over to the bank and put it in my bank account and they lend it out. And guess what? It's not there anymore. Whenever there is a a true crisis, it means there is a liquidity crisis. There's just not enough money to go around. That is how the banking system operates. It's how our economic system operates. And credit um, and debt, which sometimes can become dangerous when there's too much of it, uh, is also an important uh, piece of our economy and helps propel it. Um, when done properly. And so I think there's sort of been a little bit of a disconnect over the past couple of years uh, about what our goals really should be. Ultimately, I think we've done a pretty good job setting ourselves up to mitigate uh, the next crisis, but not eliminate the next crisis. Well, I think you make a good point, which is that anytime there's lending involved, anytime there's credit involved, the risk is never zero. Uh, Absolutely. And and one of the things that I, I... I know that I've sort of learned over the over the past five years is when I go look at the riskiest, biggest loans that are out there, um, they're not traditionally actually loans made with derivatives and other things. The riskiest things that banks do every day is make loans to companies and make loans to people. That's the riskiest thing they do every single day. But it's an important part uh, of our society and our economy, and, and they provide a utility when they do it right. Unfortunately, uh, prior to the crisis, and potentially even now, there are times when the bank isn't really operating uh, as a backroom engine for the economy, but unfortunately a frontroom profit center. Well, and the rules have changed so dramatically for banks. They don't have a lot of flexibility. I mean, uh, stated income loans have gone away. Uh, They have to meet the Freddie Mac requirements, uh, which are much more stringent at this point for mortgages. Um, uh, Banks don't have the leeway that they used to have. No question. And and it's funny because if you had asked me two or three years ago had anything on Wall Street really changed, I would have said actually not really. It, it, It didn't feel very different. Today, it actually does. I think that you're, you're finally seeing some of the capital requirements uh, that have been put in place, which, by the way, to me, was the most important thing that actually happened. You know, for all the talk about Dodd-Frank and all the talk about legislation and new rules and um, the Consumer Protection Bureau and all of that, the thing that was most important that's happened in the past five years is the fact that we now force banks to keep more capital on hand than they, than they used to. That, that is clearly the most important thing, and it, it also has huge implications for how profitable these banks can be, which means that they're less profitable. It has an impact on uh, compensation. So to me, capital uh, is probably the most important thing that you can possibly do when it comes to preventing a crisis. Because when you think about every crisis that we've lived through over the past century, frankly, uh, it's always been a function of one thing. It's been a function of, of too much leverage and too much debt in the system. So you can, we can look, think about our financial crisis and blame uh, the Federal Reserve. We can blame the bankers. We can blame uh, the regulators not minding the store. We can blame the, the conflicted credit rating agencies. You can blame every, you can find, there's many fathers to the crisis. You can find your own, Fannie and Freddie, Congress, whatever you like. But ultimately, it was the debt, it was the leverage in the system that was the match that lit the fire. And, and, it, and you can have as many bad actors as you want on the stage, but um, everything stays relatively safe uh, until and unless you have too much uh, debt in the system. Well, I'm glad you brought up the uh, bad actors, because not long ago, uh, we had Neil Borofsky on the program, who was, of course, the Special Inspector General for TARP. And he was charged with overseeing the distribution of the $700 billion bailout, which was approved. And from his perspective, the financial institutions were saved and the government came looks to have come out fine. But the folks on Main Street were helped very little and in, in most cases, not at all. So what do you say to folks who claim that all of the accountability was laid at the doorsteps of folks who bought houses that they uh, couldn't afford once the interest rates started climbing, and no one else seems to have been accountable. That we, uh, just so I understand the question, the, the assertion is that we've left 
we're, we're holding the homeowners accountable or we're holding the banks accountable? Well, we held the homeowners accountable. But not the banks. But not the banks. Okay. So here's, um, and I, I wrestle with this because it's, it's an issue we all have dealt with and all think about a lot. And again, I'm going to say something that I imagine is not popular. And if Neil was on the program now, I imagine he would disagree. Well, with you know what we're going to have to do? We're going to have to take your answer on the other side of the commercial break. I realize we've got to go to a hard commercial break now. So we'll be back in just uh, one minute. And uh, we'd like to hear what you have to say at that point. You're listening to the Costa Report. Hi, I'm Amy Tobin, cookbook author and culinary expert. Strawberries, blueberries, blackberries, and raspberries. Dole has a bounty of berries ripe for the picking. Fresh berries are not only delicious, but some of the most powerful disease-fighting foods available. Researchers have found that berries have some of the highest antioxidant levels of any fresh fruits. So add a handful or two of your favorite berries to your next meal and enjoy their nutritional benefits and natural sweetness in all of your dishes, from salads to desserts and everything in between. For fresh tips and ideas from Dole's berry experts, visit berries.dole.com. And be sure to check out the pages of mouthwatering recipes. Whether it's a sweet and savory blueberry-cranberry chicken salad or a simple strawberry sorbet, Dole has the perfect berry to inspire your next berrylicious dish. I'm here today with Scott Caraccioli of Caraccioli Cellars. Hi, Scott. How you doing? I'm doing well, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. So I've got a question for you. What's the first impression a person has when they walk into the Caraccioli tasting room? You know, it's initially always the decor, and then it's one of those things where you sit down and you realize the wine's good, too. So it becomes a complete experience. You get to experience not only the uh, great surroundings and the warm environment, but also some great wines for your palate. It's one of my favorite places to go in downtown Carmel, and I hope everyone listening to us today will take a moment to stop in, because I think that they would really enjoy the experience that you've created. Well, thank you, and please do. We'd love to have you. We're open seven days a week. It's right on Dolores between Ocean and 7th and Carmel. Thank you for being with us again, Scott. Thank you, Rebecca. If something can be done well, and it can be kept simple, then it is the best it can be. And that's exactly what you'll get with the new CC Radio EP. This is Bob from C. Crane, and the CC Radio EP simplifies AM and FM radio listening. Its performance is just as good as our finest radio, but it has no clock or alarm to set. It has needle and dial tuning, so all you have to do is turn it on and tune in your favorite station. Needle and dial tuning puts you in control of the radio, so you get the station just the way you like it. The audio with the large speaker can be crafted with the bass and treble knob. It even has voice tone control to help clarify each word. The CC Radio EP has simple, high performance. It is affordable. It sure brings the joy of listening to radio. To order the new CC Radio EP, please give us a call at 800-522-8863. That number again is 800 800- Five two two eight eight six three, or visit us online at ccradio.com. I'm Jim Bohannon, host of America in the Morning. Each day, we take you around America and the world to bring you the latest from the Midwest, the Middle East, or the middle of ground zero. A 911 call in the middle of the night. This is Howard Aronstein in Washington. Peter Mayer, the White House. David Dow, Los Angeles. Kimberly Dozier, Islamabad. And we wake up the newsmakers who wake up the world. We're joined by Senator Joe Lieberman, former Defense Secretary William Cohen, the Reverend Jesse Jackson, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, and... And while we keep our eye on the top news, we never lose sight of all the information you need to make your life complete. Well, Jim, the Northeast has had storm systems sweeping across the Northeast today. Sports time and the Tony Roberts Morning Drive jumpstarts your day. What jumpstarts your morning drive? We'd like to. Join Jim Bohannon on America in the Morning, 5 to 6, Monday through Friday on KSCO. 
Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest is columnist for the New York Times and co-anchor of CNBC's Squawk Box, Mr. Andrew Ross Sorkin. And before the break, uh, we were starting to talk about whether at the end of the day, only the homeowners were held accountable for a flawed subprime lending system. And really, no one else has been brought, you know, there's been no other accountability as far as we can tell. Right. And, and it's an important point, um, and it's a, it's a difficult point, and now I'm going to probably get myself in trouble by saying the following. Oh, go ahead. Um, <laughs> you know, we look at the bailouts, and people are frustrated and upset, and, and uh, some people are angry um, uh, about them. Um, if I'm angry about the bailouts, I would say it's more because of the compensation that I saw bankers get afterwards, meaning the bonuses that were paid out afterwards than just about anything else. I think that's what's um, perhaps has made me at least, I don't know about the rest of uh, your listeners, uh, the most frustrated about them um, because it looks like the banks win and and Main Street loses. But, but there was really no legal way not to pay those bonuses. They were bound by uh, employment contracts. Well, let's, uh, you know, AIG, yes. The AIG bonuses, yes, but not the bankers later. Mm-hmm. If you go look at the, the bank bonuses at the end of 2009, a year after the, a year after the bailouts, there's, there's no question uh, that they did not have to pay the, the, that money. They decided to pay that money, and, and uh, I, I would argue it was somewhat unconscionable at the time that they did. Having said all of that, here's where I think we miss. Mm-hmm. The bailouts ultimately actually saved all of us. They protected all of us. Our economy today, as slow and as awful as it may feel, is about 100,000 times better than it would have been had we let the banks go off the cliff. And frankly, the way we approached it by putting up $700 billion at one time to all of these banks on a voluntary basis was a much better way to do it than the way uh, the folks in Europe have done it or the way the folks in um, Japan did it. Mm-hmm. We, wrap it. we recapitalized our banks in one fell swoop. And in the UK, basically, they only provided bailout funds once you got into trouble. Yes. And so it was a drawn-out, and continues to be in Europe, a drawn-out affair. Um, we and it turned it. out we didn't need the $700 billion. We didn't actually need it. And it, and it turned it out we didn't yeah. need all of the $700 billion, and it turned out we got it, we got it back. And so I think as unpalatable as it is, and as awful as it looks, and as the optics of it are, are you know, there's nothing good about it. I don't want to say there's anything good about it in terms of the way it looks. It actually did much more, and it wasn't really just about enriching the bankers, which is sort of a popular line of thinking, but it ultimately was about protecting and saving the system, and the system was the economy. Um, you know, when I was doing the reporting for the book, I will remember to, for the rest of my life, I will never forget this. Um, we were living, just to give everybody a little bit of a sense of what unemployment was like, 4.6% unemployment was the lowest level we had. I think it was March 2007, or maybe it was 2006. Um, today, obviously, we're living now at 7.3%. The weekend that Lehman was gone, I'm sorry, the weekend after Lehman Brothers had gone under, there was a report put together by uh, but four people in Tim, what was in Tim Geithner's um, group at the New York Federal Reserve on what unemployment would look like in this country if nothing happened, meaning if they did no bailouts, they didn't um, pump all of the, the, the money through the Fed into the banks that they did. And the number contemporaneously, and of course it's a counterfactual because we will never know what would have happened, 12 months out was 24.6%. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the whole problem with uh, preempting uh, a problem, is that there's an argument afterwards about what you avoided. And so, uh, you know, avoiding a crisis isn't nearly as interesting to the American public as a ninth inning save. Nobody goes into the locker room after a ninth inning save and says, um, well, what were you doing in the first eight innings, right? Exactly. Uh, exactly. And so, so, it, so you have this problem. You have this problem of you've avoided a, a, a double-digit unemployment, but you can't get any credit for that, and no one's excited about it. And, and that is the great conundrum of this crisis. Um, you know, I think history ultimately... 10, 20, 30 years from now, we'll look fondly actually on many of the actors 
the Ben Bernankes and Hank Paulsons, uh, Tim Geyers of the world, oddly enough, even though I think that over the past couple of years, um, the prevailing view is that they, they did a horrible job. Maybe not. I don't know. I mean, it, it depends on which part of the country you're in. But um, I, I think there's still a remarkable amount of anger and frustration out there. And do you think that's tied to the fact that the banks came out uh, just fine and and seem to be uh, seem to have recovered and become extremely profitable again? I think that's part of it. I think um, I think that's a big part of it. At the same time, that most of what might be described as middle America has not risen nearly or or returned. Uh, nearly as quickly. Well, I think that's um, what Borofsky, that was his big complaint, was that no one was there to help them create a pathway to get back on their feet again. The banks were restored. The government got their money back. But that middle class or the lower classes that took advantage of those subprime loans, uh, they got slammed hard and they have not come back. I think that's true. Um I also, though, think there has to be a little bit of a reset on expectations and that the crisis, in a way, made transparent for the first time to everybody what maybe we didn't appreciate before, uh, which is that there have been some real fundamental shifts and changes in our economy in the U.S. and globally, and that uh, to be competitive um, we need to do a lot more than we're already doing. And so a lot of jobs, uh, frankly, were lost to technology. And I think that the crisis sort of uh, upended a lot of this for us. And frankly, the other piece of it is there was an element, you know, when you think about 4.6% unemployment, did it feel good? Great. Yes, it did. But that, we were living in, you know, it was Alice in Wonderland. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, what what does a real unemployment rate look like? Is it we're at 7.3 now. Is it 7? Is it 6.5? Is it 6? 4.6, I can tell you, it, it definitely is not. Um, and so, you know, if our baseline is how great it felt then, it makes everything else feel worse. Yes, uh, absolutely. And uh, we're going to have to probably come to terms with the fact that, uh, you know, 4.6 or 4.5 unemployment may be a thing of the past or may not come around again for quite a while until uh, until we're all the way through this recovery, which uh, is still it's still in its early stages. I think we can all agree it's a it's a wobbly recovery. I think that's that's not a technical term, but it's a wobbly recovery for me. Um, I I wouldn't be surprised tomorrow if I hear that, uh, you know, the Dow has gone down and people are retreating again. I think we're going to we're going to oh, jump forward, fall, retreat, I, I, move forward. I don't want to be retreat. a market prognosticator, yeah. but I think this fall is going to be a toughie. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think between everything that's going on with potential debt ceiling issues this fall, you see earnings are already struggling. We're tapering, uh, you know, all, all the QE, all the amount of money the Fed's been putting into the system. Um, you layer Syria. Well, at some, that, yeah, at some point, be- you got to pay the piper. That's absolutely true. We have to take another break. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, whether publicly traded technology companies are behaving a little too much like private companies. You're listening to the Costa Report. Did you know that every day we create 2.5 quintillion bytes of data and that 90% of the data in the world today has been created in the last two years alone? This data comes from everywhere and it affects everyone. This data is big data. Big data is all data and it's more than simply a matter of size. Big data represents an opportunity to uncover new insights, make your business more agile and answer questions that were previously beyond your reach. IBM's big data platform uses sophisticated technologies and patented advanced analytics designed to complement your existing information infrastructure. The IBM big data platform allows you to get started quickly today and expand to address more complex problems tomorrow. It doesn't matter where you start. It matters that you start. Find out how IBM can help you turn big data into a competitive advantage by visiting ibm.com slash big data today. It's time for a gala and a fair. 
So how about a gala at the fair? Hello, I'm Sharon Hayashi with an invitation to join all your good friends for the gala opening of the Santa Cruz County Fair September 10th at the fair's new Heritage Hall. You'll enjoy fine foods and drink from area restaurants, breweries, and wineries, and a lot of fine chocolates, delicious oysters, and lots of friends and fellowship. Proceeds to youth groups at the Heritage Hall. Tickets at SantaCruzCountyFair.com. See you at the gala. If electricity flows through it, you can save a lot of money by doing it yourself with the help of the experts at Santa Cruz Electronics. Hello, Charlie Friedman here. Listen to the things your friends and neighbors are doing for themselves with the help of Santa Cruz Electronics. Microwave repair. Robotic arm with controller for e-shed industrial arm. Tesla coil for my rail gun. Dead tricks upgrades. Drive for a telescope. A tube amp for my guitar. Submersible sensors for NASA. Ethernet cable for my new iMac. Solar-powered gate. Instrument panel for an airplane. Wiring my hot rod. Upgrading PC system. Help with home wiring. Custom audio cables for recording studio. High voltage electronic ignition circuit. Building a spaceship. If electricity flows through it, you can save a lot of money by doing it yourself with the help of the experts at Santa Cruz Electronics. Voted best electronics store two years running. Call Santa Cruz Electronics today at 831-479-5444 or visit at 2808 SoCal Avenue in Santa Cruz. Do it yourself and save money with the help of Santa Cruz Electronics. So you finally decided to start taking a vitamin supplement. Those chewables and tablets are fine if you don't mind paying for something that is only absorbed about 4 to 6%. However, a liquid supplement can have a 90% absorption rate if you choose the right one. Longevity offers a wide variety of liquid supplements with a 90% absorption rate or more. Beyond Tangy Tangerine may be the best one ever invented. It starts as a liquid that is freeze-dried like those instant coffees into a crystal. Then all you have to do is add a couple of scoops to water. No refrigeration, no fuss, no mess. Not only do you get a complete multiple vitamin, Beyond Tangy Tangerine also has minerals and it tastes fantastic. You'll want to drink it all day long. So the next time you reach for a vitamin supplement, reach for Beyond Tangy Tangerine from Longevity. For more information or to order, call Andy or Phyllis Anderson at 888-245-0300. That's 888-245-0300. Tune in to the Dave Allen Show every Sunday at 4 for an eclectic mix of guests, music, and hot talk that spins towards the positive. So if you're tired of confrontational bickering on the radio, take a step to the positive. Take a step with the Dave Allen Show every Sunday from 4 to 6 p.m. on KSEO AM 1080. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is New York Times columnist and author of Too Big to Fail, Andrew Ross Sorkin. So moving on to mergers and acquisitions, uh, how mm-hmm. about this deal between Microsoft and uh, Nokia? It, it, it's starting to look more and more like Microsoft's trying to play catch-up in the mobile platform space. Oh, goodness. They've been playing catch-up since the beginning. Um, this is one... Uh, uh, you know, accountants like to write, you know, if you're going to write something off, you're supposed to do it immediately. This is one of those things I woke up in the morning, saw the news, and thought, well, this is like a $7 billion write-off in one day. <laughs> I, I think this is very challenging. Uh-huh. Um, I, you know, this is a, a sort of a shocking transaction to me because Microsoft's effectively buying something I would argue it already owns in that Nokia supplied uh, 80% of the phones that had Windows smartphone already on it. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, there's some marketing overlap. Yes, maybe by being owned by them, there's some integration issues that, that can be better. But Microsoft is so far behind on this that it's going to take a real leader to step in um, and change things around. Now, So what was the point in, in buying no, this uh, division of Nokia? I mean, what well, I, I don't understand. I think- I think there was a moment in the, uh, inside Microsoft over the past two years that said, you know what, the future is mobile. Maybe it's tablets, maybe it's uh, handsets, maybe it's ultimately watch, you know, iWatches, whatever, but it, it's mobile. And we don't own 
any real hardware. We outsource it elsewhere. I see. And when you look at Apple, Apple owns the software, they own the hardware. Google owns the software and Android now, and mm-hmm. they bought Motorola. They own the hardware. And I think if you're Microsoft, you're saying, how, you know, if I'm going to even try to compete, how do I do it? And the last major player out there would be Nokia. So there's an argument to be made. You know, that is the argument to do it. Uh, the question is, given the market share that Microsoft has in the marketplace, it's so small. And then to spend $7 billion uh, for a business in decline um, I think raised some eyebrows. Well, what about these rumors that uh, Stephen Elop might be the logical predecessor to uh, Balmer, since he was a former executive at Microsoft? Well, I, I won't dissuade you of the view, except to tell you that it also makes no sense. Um, <laughs> but none of this makes any sense. <laughs> you know, are there people inside Microsoft who think that he may become the next CEO? Absolutely. First of all, to pay $7 billion to buy a CEO is a crazy idea. You, you can buy him for much less if you really want to do that. Uh, the second thing is, and he is a perfectly nice guy, and from everything that people say about him, uh, a very good manager. He's someone who oversaw the decline over the last three years of Nokia, which stock went from $14 to $3. Mm-hmm. He also happened to be the same person who decided to do business with Microsoft instead of doing business with Android, which, yeah. which was the operating system that ultimately worked. If Nokia Not much of a track record there, is there? So I'm, I, you know, I, I, get a, <laughs> I get a little excited about this issue because it seems a little crazy. Um, you know, Bill Gates knows him and likes him, and ultimately, despite the fact there is a board at Microsoft, I imagine one person with the initials BG will be the person who decides who the next CEO of this company is. And the real question and challenge for Bill Gates in deciding who that person is, is going to be, are you hiring a manager or are you hiring a visionary? Um, and look, if you, can get, if you can get both, fantastic. But that's usually pretty hard and yeah, so they're the usually thing? mutually exclusive uh, that's why generals have lieutenants that go and make everything happen and they right. hide the generals in the white tents and don't let them speak directly to the soldiers so that, but that's what they're going to have to decide and they're going to have to decide who is the right person to do that you know the other name that was speculated about today was alan mulally who runs ford yeah who also has a nice relationship with microsoft um they do a, a lot of partnerships with their vehicles using microsoft technology and Alan Mulally used to run Boeing, and he did a great job when he was at Boeing, and he did a great job turning around Ford. Does Alan Mulally know a thing about software? I doubt it. But maybe all, all you really need is to be an inspiring leader, and if that's the case, I would give him the job. So we'll, we'll see who gets the job. By the way, on um, ELOP, um, coming from Nokia, the other thing that makes no sense about this is what happens if they do the deal, or the deal is completed as we all imagine it will be and then he doesn't get the job <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't know I can't my predictions don't stretch that far uh, but it, it's an interesting situation um, would love to find out what happens with him I suspect uh, to everyone's shock he will leave but that's just my guess um, you know I, I've worked in Silicon Valley for decades and, and you know I, I've noticed quite a difference in how technology companies uh, that uh, trade publicly operate these days and, and uh, in fact I think it was Google who uh, wanted to issue some kind of uh, public stock which offered shareholders no voting rights which to me was a, a little bit like saying we want the benefit of using the public investors' money, but we don't want you to have any say in how we run our company or who runs our company. Um, it, 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 that just doesn't seem in the spirit of a public company. Do, do I have that wrong? Uh, yes and no. I think you're right um, in that it doesn't feel like a public company in many respects. This has gone on, by the way, in the media industry for a very long time. The New York Times company, for example, had dual class shares. The Washington Post company had dual class, has dual class shares. The Comcast company, and as a, uh, you know, I also host Squawk Box on CNBC. It's a parent company is NBC and Comcast, so I should disclose that they have dual class shares. The, the Roberts family controls that company. Um, there are arguments to be made that in certain circumstances you want uh, – to be able to operate and manage the company without the potential interference from activists and other uh, shareholders. And when you look at what Google has done, for example, or frankly possibly what Facebook has done right now, um, we should probably all be happy that 
you know, Bill Ackman, who uh, invested in JCPenney, for example, and, and helped run it into the ground, isn't, isn't, you know, in a position to be able to scream and shout about how he thinks Google shares should be higher and what they need to do and, and, and to take everyone's eye off the ball. That is the, the argument against um, or, or the argument for rather having dual class shares. The problem is it works until it doesn't. Right. So for Google, it's a great thing today. Um, you know, if Yahoo had had that situation, it would probably be a great thing for a couple of years until it didn't work anymore. And then everyone would be furious if they had dual class shares because you would have never gotten to a position where you were able to hire someone like Marissa Meyer, which only happened after a proxy fight uh, when Dan Loeb, an activist investor, got involved. Right. So, so these companies, they really tend to be founder centric public it's companies centric and 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 look if you have the if you have a great founder and the founder is great forever fantastic but look actually dell is a good example mm-hmm. that's actually a very good example of a company that was terrific until it wasn't and the question is when it isn't what do you do and so you can give people special authorities but for how long so long term it becomes it becomes quite complicated so we hear the argument both ways. Uh, we hear that, uh, you know, the the founder, if you lose the founder who's the visionary, then the company's in trouble. And then on the other hand, we hear, well, at a certain point, the company needs to operate like a company and uh, you need to give the founder different responsibilities. Uh, which is it? Are these technology companies so dependent on that founder that uh, they don't have a chance when the founder's removed, like Bill Gates or uh, Mark Zuckerberg or even a Larry? Ellison or a Steve Jobs kind of, you know, founder-centric company? I think a lot of founder-centric companies, um, this is also going to be unpopular to say. (laughs) Boy, you're on a roll today. (laughs) Well, let me say this. Um, We all want shareholder democracy. That seems to be the the sort of direction we're all taking in in this whole country. Uh, We want to have a greater seat at the table. Uh, the best companies seem to operate the best um, when there is a uh, fearless leader who is really spectacular and they're able to run it relatively as a dictatorship um, when they're good. This yes. obviously uh, works horribly when they're bad. But when they're good, um, you actually don't want the interference of the shareholders. Mm-hmm. And so you look at a Steve Jobs and you look at that that company, you look at the board, the, it, it acted like a private company, even even though, by the way, there weren't dual-class shares. And it, it was a very tight-knit group, And but, but what... It was, it was not what you would think of as a model of corporate governance. None of those companies would be. Mm-hmm. But you'd well, say they were the fastest growing. Yeah, absolutely. Now, we have to take our last break, so st- stay right where you are. We'll be right back with Andrew Ross Sorkin. You're listening to the Costa Report. If you listen to the news today, you might come away with the impression that our biggest challenges are political and economic. But if this were true, then countries which have different political and economic systems would be facing different problems. But they aren't. Every government and every nation is struggling with job creation, debt, immigration, climate change, terrorism, health care, energy, and wild swings in financial markets. So something else must be going on. That's why I'm inviting you to get a copy of The Watchman's Rattle, a book which shows how the Roman, Mayan, and Khmer empires once faced similar challenges and what we can do to avoid their fate. Visit RebeccaCosta.com today and get a copy of The Watchman's Rattle, because once you do, you'll never look at the world the same way. Fifty years ago, Dr. Martin Luther King delivered his famous I Have a Dream speech. But something you may not know is that Dr. King was represented by the world's foremost speaking agency, the American Program Bureau. The American Program Bureau has a courageous history of representing luminaries, entertainers, and motivators from all backgrounds. From Ronald Reagan, Richard Branson, and Mikhail Gorbachev, to John Stewart, Michael Douglas, and Desmond Tutu. From A-list celebrities to best-selling authors, cutting-edge business leaders, and the greatest minds in academia, the American Program Bureau has speakers to fit every venue and every budget. When corporations, conferences, schools, and community organizations need an expert speaker, they turn 
turn to the American Program Bureau to help them craft an event that will be remembered long afterwards. To inquire about a speaker for your next engagement, contact the American Program Bureau at 800-225-4575 or visit our website at apbspeakers.com. The American Program Bureau, making history one speech at a time. When it comes to your business, we are all business. Hi, I'm Michelle Bassey with Wells Fargo Bank. Wells Fargo has teamed up with the Santa Cruz chapter of SCORE to bring you small business counseling sessions on KSCO Tuesday mornings at 745 and evenings at 515. Tune in and learn how successful business people walk their talk. When it comes to your business, our Wells Fargo-powered SCORE counseling sessions on KSCO really are all business. Tune in and learn. Lloyd's Tire Service in Santa Cruz beats chain store prices on the best tires every day. And right now, you'll get a $70 reward card after submission when you buy any set of four Michelin tires. Did you know that Lloyd's is now a fully certified hybrid service center? The latest green technology from the hybrid shop means no more expensive battery replacement. New batteries average over $4,000, but Lloyd's can condition yours for a fraction of that. And you can do this for the life of your car. If you own a Prius or any other hybrid, call Lloyd's today for details about complete hybrid care. Lloyd's Tire Service is one of the nation's largest independent Michelin dealers with great prices every day. $70 reward card offer good through September 24th. Card issued by U.S. Bank pursuant to a license from MasterCard International Incorporated. See Lloyd's for details. Void where prohibited. Visit Lloyd's on Facebook or at Lloyd'sTire.com for great deals. Then get over to Lloyd's in Santa Cruz today because when you think quality, think Lloyd's. Lloyd's Tire Service. It's the Way of Love Live, the variety show committed to bringing you positive stories and life-affirming messages. Combined with enough inspirational music and satirical comedy to make it worth everyone's while. Together we focus on the most important issues of the day by exploring informed and enlightened approaches wherever we can find them. Using serialized fiction, we bring to life great stories from the past and sci-fi possibilities of the future. Join us every Saturday, 5 to 7 p.m. for It's the Way of Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is Andrew Ross Sorkin. And before the break, you were making the point that companies like Apple and Facebook, although public, tend to be run as dictatorships, and that's fine when they're succeeding. But I think you were getting ready to talk about shareholders' democracy and where that plays a role. Well, well, it does play a role, and, and, and the issue is that over the long term, you may want uh, a democracy. You want a shareholder to be able to stand up and say, you know what, this isn't working, It could be, or it could be working better. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the question becomes, where's the balance in all of that? Because there are going to be times where there are shareholders who are in it for, you know, they're quick buck artists. They're, they're, they, they, they want to leverage up the company so they'll pay out a big dividend. And it's very short-term thinking. There are other investors who are going to be longer-term thinking. There are other investors who are going to come with ideas that don't always work. Bill Ackman, for example, has had some terrific ideas over the years. But then his idea about JCPenney, which he got on the board, uh, about hiring Ron Johnson from Apple, turned out to be a disaster. So... It's well, we do have to remember that uh, um, Steve Jobs hired Scully or approved Scully coming on board. So we that tend to too. forget that. So, yeah. you know, look, people make mistakes and, 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 and democracy is messy. So may, maybe this is just what we have to live with. Um, but uh, my worry long term is, is what's going to happen to, you know, a Google later. Um, you know, once the founders really aren't interested, um, you know, how is that going to work? And there will be a time, uh, hopefully it will be a long time from now, but there will be a time where the company won't be growing as fast as it does or doing as unique and interesting things. And then the question will be, what can shareholders do about it? And currently the way the company is structured, the answer is next to nothing. Well, Google seems to be following the Johnson & Johnson model, you know, uh, innovate through acquisition. Uh, they're acquiring lots of companies, uh, smaller ones, investing in smaller ones, and uh, Johnson and Johnson certainly has had a long run doing that. Yeah, no, it's it's a strategy, and and they may develop other things on their own as well. So, it, look, it, I, I don't want to suggest all these companies are are doomed. Uh, it's just that truly fast growing companies at some point can't grow as fast. It's just it's, a, it's the law of large numbers. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I'd like to try to spend uh, some of the remaining time with you talking about these new complex financial instruments that we have on Wall Street now. And, you know, we have people uh, that manage the largest pension funds going on 60 minutes and claiming that they can't understand these instruments anymore, but they're investing in them anyways. And, and you know, with all the split-second information that's available coming in from global markets around the world, in your view, what chance does the average person on the street have of being able to manage their own investments? I mean, it, it seems impossible given the amount of data that you'd have to be able to process and understand and react to in just picoseconds. Do you want me to say it out loud? The system's rigged. Yeah, I want you to say it out loud because because I'm I'm you know I look at this big data these big data applications and there's just no way anybody who's investing on their own has a chance. I, and I, I I would not disagree with you if if you think that you're investing by yourself, um, you know, at home and you have a day job and and you're doing this on the side at night or occasionally looking at stuff on the weekend. It is impossible to believe that you can uh, win consistently on a relative basis to what the professionals are doing. Now, part of it is because they are professionals, and that's what they do all day. And I also think that we need to get away from this idea that somehow, um, you know, the system is going to be some, somehow that the guy in his pajamas uh, in his basement on the computer uh, working one hour a day or one hour a week looking at his investments is somehow going to have as fair a shot as the guy who spends uh, 24 hours a day on his computer. It's just, it's, it's just not but it's not just the it's it's not just the knowledge that you would need. Well, it's not just the knowledge. It's the speed at which the data comes in and the complexity that you have to be able to wade through. Well, I think that's part of it. I do think that that, that you're seeing high frequency trading, and that's part of it. But I'm not even sure that's the part that I worry about the most. It's it's a big part of the volume that you see every day on the New York Stock Exchange, for example, but it's a small part uh, of what's really truly moving uh, stocks in a meaningful way. What what those folks are trying to do is arbitrage. They're trying to um, they're trying to take advantage of, of, of little incremental penny. They're trying to pick up pennies here and there. Mm-hmm. That's what that that's a different business. I think the larger question is whether my mom or my dad can actually invest in the stock market and compete against people who are working at large hedge funds, who are going to conferences, who are meeting with managements, who have access to all sorts of research, who have access to all sorts of other information that, frankly, is too costly and expensive and difficult to get for the average person. Mm -hmm. And then what do you do? That, to me, is, is the question. We have tried to pretend for, all, for, long, for far too long that, that the market is such a democratic, sort of merit, meritocratic place that anybody can play. Yeah, well, it's not true. Uh, you know, for me, anyone who's in the financial community and is managing funds is trading on the basis of insider information. I mean, I mean, the definition of insider information is information that everybody else doesn't have, right? Correct. Now, now, let's let's just define that a little bit, and and let me not try to suggest for half a second that there's not an inside information problem going on at Wall Street because there is. Mm-hmm. But there's two types of what I would describe as material inside information. There's there's inside information in the context that I know about a merger that's going to be announced tomorrow, and uh, you know some investor finds it, is able to find out about that, and nobody else is able to find it. That's true inside information, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then that does happen, um, uh, hopefully not that often. And when that happens, I think it gets prosecuted uh, traditionally or hopefully. I think there's a much more insidious version of inside information going on in the marketplace today, which is the idea that we have investors meet with managements, managements who don't try to provide, they don't tell them that there's a deal going on tomorrow or that there's, they think they're going to beat their earnings next quarter, or they're not telling them something that they haven't told other people. But there is a, there's a body language. There's a, um, uh, not a wink and a nod, but th- there's enough in, in these meetings uh, that, that are taking place that, that the average person doesn't have access to that really helps these investors make decisions about whether to invest. And despite the fact that they're not 
the CEOs are not necessarily disclosing material information. I can promise you these investors wouldn't be getting on planes to get to these meetings if they didn't think there was something material about them. Absolutely. I, I, I think you're absolutely right. It's it's the intangible information that they have mm-hmm. that gives them an advantage. And, uh, you know, that advantage translates into uh, being able to make a call and make a better decision mm-hmm. than uh, exactly. someone who doesn't have that information. Well, that is our program for today. Boy, that flew by fast. But uh, before we say goodbye, um, let me take a moment to thank you for taking time to be with us. Thank you, Mr. Sorkin. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. If your station is leaving us after this hour and you'd like to comment on today's program, you can email me at RebeccaCosta.com or send me a note on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. We're all over the Internet, so drop me a line and let me know how you feel about our conversation with Andrew Ross Sorkin. And if you missed the full interview with Sorkin or any of our other programs, uh, you can download previous episodes from our website, Apple iTunes, Podbean, and our new YouTube channel. And I also want to take a moment to remind you that if you haven't ordered your copy of The Watchman's Rattle, uh, please take a moment and go to RebeccaCosta.com and put your order in today. And if you have ordered it, we thank you uh, from the bottom of our hearts. Uh, in addition for of the book being a page turner uh, that you won't want to put down, I want to remind you that all proceeds from book sales keep nonpartisan programming like the Costa Report on the air. And all you have to do these days is turn on the radio or television to see for yourself just how partisan the media has become. So do your part. Pick up a copy of The Watchman's Rattle at RebeccaCosta.com because this is a book that explains how we got here and what we now have to do to dig ourselves out. My guest next week is former United States Representative, Senator, and Vice Presidential nominee for the GOP ticket, Mr. Connie Mack III. While serving in Congress, Mack was known for his work in finance and also in tax reform. And we're going to check in with him to see whether a simpler tax code means fewer loopholes. I don't know how many people know, but our tax code has somehow managed to exceed 76,000 pages. So don't miss Connie Mack next week, right? here on the Costa Report, the one program you can count on week after week to put principles ahead of politics. Now stay tuned for the second hour of the Costa Report when we hear what you think about our conversation with Andrew Ross Sorkin. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice america business channel for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit voiceamericabusiness.com the voice america talk radio network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio visit voiceamerica.com the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the voice america talk radio network its staff and management